Welcome to the boat. I'm Ryan. I'm Wally. And I'm Grant. And this is a podcast where we go through a tournament style bracket of our top 10 favorite movies, plus some extras. And we try and determine which movie is the best of all time, AKA the boat. Today on the podcast, it is the thing that I've been saying is the next podcast that we're going to be doing for probably six months now. And I think that's as long as we've been doing the podcast, but we're finally doing it. Two Towers versus Kung Fu Panda and Skadoosh. Skadoosh. And uh, on on that topic, we actually have another guest because we enjoyed it so well the last time. And so uh, this time I'm going to let him introduce himself. And he was smart because he unmuted instead of letting me unmute. Go ahead. I wasn't paying attention. Um, I'm Sean Quinn. I am Ryan's brother. And um, yeah, that's, I like these movies. I really enjoy the podcast. Um, I was a fan of your guys' other podcasts as well. Um, well it's always nice to yeah, be a fan. About <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about that podcast because Grant gets self-conscious. Um, I am right now, so that's okay. It's the first so, podcast I've ever been on, but um, yeah, I don't know what else you want me to introduce myself cherry. to. So. Yeah, popping your cherry as a white man. It's surprising it took this long for, for you to get on a podcast of some sort. Um, no, that was... <laughs> Just well, yeah, our culture as white men is... Uh, sorry, Wally, uh, you're, you're mixed, so it's a little different. But um, as an honorary white man, every white man should and try to have a podcast and ultimately fail, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, how's it feel to be on the most uncomfortable episode of this podcast <laughs> you've ever done before? Hey, I thought I was going to be the reason for yeah. it, so at least that's it's like, not... Very blue off the bat. That's a great tie-in to our, uh, our, one of our movies, which is a, a movie about uh, China in which there's only one Chinese person on the, or maybe two, I will say two Chinese people on the docket for voice acting. Um, Three, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, I know it's... Um, Less than there should be, yep. Yes. Um, You're talking about the two towers, right? I am. Yes, yes. I. <laughs> two towers has horrible. Uh, it's has, the has, Panda Express of oh, a China movie about kung fu, kind of. I think. And okay. The two towers. <laughs> no, yeah, Panda Express. Towers, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it has a little bit more heart than that. Panda bit Express, bit. Sean. <laughs> Panda Express. That was the movie where Tom Hanks plays every character in it, right? Wait, there's a movie called Panda Express. Yeah, when the Polar Express yeah goes to China, it's called Panda Express. No, that that's that's the the the, the book Panda written Adventure. by uh, um, uh, the 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 murder that takes place on the train. <laughs> on the you know. Orient Express and <laughs> the Polar <laughs> Express. Yes, <laughs> the uh, the uh, and the murderer is ultimately a panda, so it it works out great. God, that joke um, would have been funnier if I was actually literate and know who wrote that book. She wrote tons of mystery novels, and I'm ashamed that I can't think of her. Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie. Thank you. I apologize to Agatha Christie. I know you're. She's an avid listener to the podcast. I think she's dead. I think. Well, she's that dead. a mystery, isn't it? You think you don't know because that's how fucking good she was. Who killed Agatha Christie? No one will ever know. It's the best uh, podcast or best um, book you'll ever write. <laughs> written by Best who killed Agatha? she wrote it herself <laughs> and the spin is everybody did the world but, did. it beat her down okay tangent which movie do we want to talk about first 
we've already dived in on Kung Fu Panda. Uh, oh, right. Would yeah. you care to give us the yes. professional rundown on Kung Fu Panda? <clears throat> oh, right. Yeah. Okay, so, Wally. Kung Fu Panda is a DreamWorks animated movie released June 6, 2008. The opening box office was $60.2 million, and then the overall box office was $631 million from a budget of $130 million, so quadrupled its uh, budget. It spawned a franchise with two sequels, a TV show for Nickelodeon, several video games, including a Smash clone. The story fire, uh, follows the titular Kung Fu Panda, Poe, where he goes from being a Kung Fu fanatic to believing he can be a legendary dragon warrior to defeat evil. So the film stars Jack Black, as we mentioned. Um, yeah. Not a lot of Asian actors in this. We got Jack Black. We got Ian McShane as the villain. Dustin Hoffman as uh, Master Master, Master Shifu. Um, yeah, this is, yeah, one of my favorite uh, animated films. Definitely my favorite uh, DreamWorks film. So that's definitely why I wanted to bring this one to the table. Yeah, Wally, while we're on the topic, this was one that, that you brought. Um, what are some of the, the standout moments or characteristics? You know, what is it that really sets this up above for you compared to, um, say, some of the other DreamWorks films that uh, performed well? Things like Shrek, How to Train Your Dragon. I mean, it's a, a juggernaut of a studio. So trying to select one movie out of the list uh, would be a tricky task. Yeah, so when I was... Um getting ready to watch this movie for the first time i uh, saw the chicago tribune review for the film and what really stuck out to me in the review was like i had always liked the dreamworks movies i felt like at this point they were kind of waning and in quality to me at least you know you had stuff like b movie monsters versus aliens you know not very rememberable films like they were funny you know but they weren't really saying much of anything um so like the review, I look, I pulled out some snippets from that review. So it's everything about Kung Fu Panda is a little better, a little sharper, a little funnier than the animated run of the mill. And what convinced me to watch this movie was this, uh, this next quote. Many won't agree with this uh, next statement, particularly if they're fans of the monstrous, monstrously lucrative uh, Shrek franchise, but here it is. I prefer Kung Fu Panda to any of the Shreks along with the moderately diverting entertainment such as B-Movie, plus more grading items such as Madagascar, Shark Tale, and Over the Hedge. And it, like upon rewatching it, it's really the story that sticks out compared to most DreamWorks movies. Like I feel DreamWorks tries to focus on the graphics and the comedy doesn't really try to focus on the storytelling too much. Even the first Shrek, you know, like a movie I loved as a kid, uh, going back and watching that 20 years later doesn't necessarily hold up on the story factor, at least to me. Um, you know, it's still pretty funny. A lot of the jokes can still are funny, but still very 2001. And I'd, it was just at that point, you know, we were trying to push 3D graphics to look very realistic. And by the time you get to Kung Fu Panda, they kind of ease up on that. It's more stylized. I feel, you know, you see the 2D uh, cartoon at the beginning, and then I think they are able to take that and put it into 3D wonderfully, super stylized, not in a super uncanny way at all. So from the graphics to the storytelling, 
I do do think it's pretty funny uh, too. It's very much you know a kids movie with its humor. It can I don't know be a little grating in that factor, but just the fact that this movie has story, something you know, a story and heart. Something you know called Kung Fu Panda. You expect something really stupid. Like the trailers for this just had him walking up the stairs, the scene where his like butt ends up on the bad guy. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a stupid movie. And then like upon watching it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really sad when the turtle dies and everything. And, you know, like you really feel for the the bad guy, too. Like in the end, you know, he was like just trying to do his best uh, for, you know, his surrogate father. And in the end, he paid for it because he was pushed too hard. So. It is a movie that, you know, delightfully surprise. I will feel surprised its viewers upon watching it because, you know, just by the title, it's pretty dumb. That's like a lot of the other movies on my list, like RoboCop sounds super dumb, but that's a wonderful movie. And even if Jurassic Park wasn't like as popular as it is, just the name Jurassic Park sounds pretty dumb, too. But it's like I like when you can take a dumb premise and make it interesting, make it fun, and put a little heart into it. And that's, yeah, Kung Fu has that in spades. And honest, okay, I'm just going to keep going. Um, when I watched it at the time, what I really liked about it was the freaking action scenes. Like for a 3D animated film, like I don't think I had ever seen that much action in a 3D animated film up to that point. Like, there were great shows like Avatar, The Last Airbender, like on Nickelodeon at the time, but, you know, that was 2D. I feel they really pushed the limits uh, with 3D in this, and, you know, that can be said with some of their, sorry, I'm just kind of flipping through my notes, some of their uh, inspirations, including um, House of the Flying Daggers, um, another really funny Kung Fu movie, Kung Fu Hustle, which is really just a live-action mix of martial arts and Looney Tunes. So that's, again, perfect fit for this movie too. Um, another thing that I probably appreciated most on my uh, most recent rewatch was the facial animation. is really funny. Let's see. Wally, that was a stellar breakdown. Um, <laughs> I think you covered, you covered quite a bit. Um, and I, I, I think the one the one thing that kind of irked me is yeah how good this story was and then they like it stalled in or in the service of comedy like it i was i was a little frustrated simply because it was like there was that scene between um uh master shifu and um tai uh tai long uh is that right i think so the oh, bad guy yeah yeah mcshane's character um where they were like they were having that fight and they were having like like such an intense like father-son argument and like physical fight and all that sort of stuff and then poe comes in not with like a, a noble attempt to save him but it's like a dumb like one-liner and i'm like i and you you know maybe it is just because it, it is a kid's movie and they don't expect kids to like think that hard on it but it just i was i was so devastated to not um not see as much or not see a continuation of that like fighting yeah i think that's fair i think maybe at this time like they were maybe a little too afraid to make it maybe too heartfelt of like okay this is getting way too sad we're scaring the kids now with the scary tiger thing we gotta you know yuck it up with poe 
again i feel like if this movie like if they made this idea now there would be even more heart into it maybe even less jokes well Ryan, you brought up something that, you know, th- this movie was a, uh, a bit of an eye opener because it was one I, I watched a fair amount growing up. I've got a lot of younger siblings. Um, and this time around, this was the first movie in the list that I really felt that I watched for something different. You know, I, I felt I got something different out of the movie being at a different place in my life. Um, I really felt that Shifu, Master Shifu, was really the main character of the movie. You know, in, in the intro, Poe doesn't have, he doesn't ever have an I want or a challenge. You know, you can tell he likes Kung Fu, but he never says, I want to be a part of Kung Fu. He never said, you know, we just know he he is fascinated and interested in it, but he never has a goal, a dream, a, an objective. And you see his relationship with his father is very positive. You know, he wants to tell his father about his Kung Fu fascination, but he can't bring himself to do it. His dad keeps going like, yeah, uh uh-huh, you know, waiting for him to say something and he just talks about noodles instead. And so I I never got the impetus, the drive of Poe's character as as like actually having um, momentum or purpose in the story. Whereas Shifu goes through like a full internal change. He has a, a conflict at the beginning of his past coming back to haunt him. He failed as a teacher a teacher to his most important student that comes back to bite him. And now he has to train a new generation to help try and um, overcome his own challenges and his mistakes. And in doing so, he remakes the same mistakes he did the first time until he meets Poe. And he learns to train and teach in a new way, in a way to accommodate and help this individual grow into themselves. At which point after he faces his challenge one more time and loses, the individual he trained and and taught um, is able to step in and and fulfill the role. So what we see is Shifu's hero's journey setting up Poe's hero's journey, which I would imagine would happen in like Kung Fu Panda 2, where I felt like in this one, he was really like a main character, but he wasn't the force. I mean, all the lessons and morals of the movie came from Ugwe to Shifu or Ugwe to Poe and ultimately to Shifu, but it was it was Shifu who's the one who I think underwent the most growth and development by the end of the film. Well, and I think he realized, like you you said that he he kind of he he changed with Poe, but I think he he changed in a negative way with the other people he was training, and he got back. He I think it was like him coming to realize that his son didn't turn evil because of anything that he did like he gave him all the love and affection and and his son still like there was that like you know you have to be a master and stuff like that but i think from those flashbacks you get of it he he pushed him hard but there was also a lot of love there but he he didn't train in the self-acceptance that was the problem the uh, tai lung could not accept himself he always felt he had to be more because that was what Shifu pushed him. Mm-hmm. He was pushing him to be the dragon warrior. If you weren't, you know, yes, there was love, but it, you always had to be more than what you were. With Poe, it was, you are great. Let's find a way to bring out the the greatness that's already inside that, yeah. of you. That's a great point, right? And that goes through the whole dragon scroll thing of like when Poe opens it and then, you know, they first don't realize like, oh, that he is enough. And then when Tai Long opens it, you know, he sees his reflection when he said, there's nothing there. So 
Sean, do you have any thoughts? Because we've been kind of railroading you. No, I'm listening intently. I, I think I, I agree. I, it was interesting to hear what Grant said because there were a few points where I feel like I had, I thought a little differently, but you kind of like arrived at a very similar place. But I'm trying to like, I'm also, I guess I'm just fan shocked right now. I'm like listening to that. You guys, like I can like, Oh, like pause and like, wow, that was funny. And sometimes I call Ryan. I'm like, that part was funny. And then I go back to listening to it. So just have to get like, it's not like you're railroading me. It's like, I'm just like starstruck. But um, I was going to say, you said something like there wasn't a dream and like Poe literally has a dream about Kung Fu. And he's in, I feel like he does have this huge drive. I feel like Poe has the traditional hero's journey in this movie and Shifu has like the mentor's journey in that Mm -hmm. he's really only learning one lesson, which is to let go. And like Uguay's already let go of everything. He's just the Zen master and Shifu he caused this problem by being like, this is the dragon warrior. I'm in love with this tiger and I'm going to turn him into the dragon warrior. It was all a control journey. And now he's like, still can't get let go of control. He's training like the furious five. And then when Uguay is like, here's the dragon warrior, he still can't like relinquish this. That's his sort of transformative journey. I feel like, but I feel like it still ties in what you were saying, but like, it's like, I do, I think what you, what you said at the end, which was the, the, where I agreed was like, I do think Shifu does undergo the bigger transformation. I think Poe was always, and he always is the, it's the mirror, like in the Dragon Scroll, like he always had it inside him. He just had to like believe in himself and nobody ever did. So he didn't. So yeah, it's, I think Shifu's yeah. transformation is a lot more, even though it, like looking at it, it's like, all he had to do is this one thing, let go. It took so much to change that in that guy poe had to learn the hero's journey but didn't have to change that much to do it like he just skadooshed and you know (laughs) shot his he just bounced his way through i guess so it's interesting but there was a dream there was a dream and and then he's like you had the noodle dream (laughs) so his dad's not like what it was a dream about it's like yeah lies and i i think i think Poe's story is a lot more simple. It's a child who doesn't feel capable of, you know, going against what his parents wish. And you see that in a loving relationship, which is like, usually there's a negative connotation to that. And I think it's interesting that in this point, it's just like, no, the dad just, the dad has so much love for him that he just wants him to have all the things that he had that he wanted, that the dad wanted out of his life and he got out of his life. But he also didn't like the dad tells. I just watched this last night too. But there's a the part where the dad's like, he talks about tofu. Oh, I had a time where I wanted to do tofu, and he goes, Why "Didn't you do it?" And he goes, "Oh, it's just a stupid dream." And like, yeah, but that's not, the, that's not what the dad really wanted. Like, well, and yeah. no, I thought it was like metaphoric. Like it was like the the point I would argue with here is traditionally the trope of the the familial obligation is. Um, that it's an extraordinary burden, you know, like the family has to eat shit because that's the role in life and the parents are grumpy and they hate what they do, but they got to do it because you know what, that's just who we are. And I was really interested going into this film because from the beginning, you don't have an adversarial relationship with the parent. The parent is very loving, supportive. And when Poe wants to tell him that, oh, but I want to go see the, the, the tournament, 
his dad, the thing that got me was Poe was like, but dad. And he's like, uh-huh. And Poe's silent and you can see the thing. And he's like, uh-huh. And he oh, keeps yeah. prompting. He's like, you know, share help with me, help, help me. And, yeah. and right. Poe doesn't. And so I don't, I, I struggled because, um, you know, it, in the traditional version of this trope, you can see why the person feels unfulfilled or mm. or beaten down um and it, it's it's uh it, a triumph to overcome their parent and in this one it was really i i, I didn't know you know it, it felt more like poe overcoming his uncertainty yeah. rather than coming to turns with his dream or like challenging his family in any regard like his dad never makes him do the noodle stuff even when he comes back after failing kung fu it's not like oh well you couldn't do it in the first place you know it was a consoling it was never meant to be it's okay we'll we'll try something else and then when there's an he sees that the fire is still there he talks him back into it with the the secret ingredient roundabout he communicated the only way he i don't know this time around it may be where i'm at in my life but i really latched on to the managers and the dads in the movie Yeah. So, well, Poe gets yeah. off so easy for not doing the noodle cart for the Kung Fu Fest. Like he abandons that pretty quickly, and his dad's just like, "Let's <laughs> no go." Home, well, and yeah, I think Poe Poe overcomes his own self doubt, and then at the end, he gets the acceptance from his dad, and his dad's like proud to be like. And I wish there would have been more of a like hit on the head of like, "No, I'm proud that you you kept at it even though you were feeling this way," rather than a "Great, you saved us." What? Didn't his dad always accept him? So it's more like he accepts his dad. Like his dad accepted him for whatever he wanted to be, and Poe needed to needed to mm. grow up here and tell his dad what he yeah. wanted to be. But Grant, I really loved the um idea that Shifu was the um the main character of the story because like halfway through and maybe and this is partly because I know this is a kid story and like logically it actually doesn't make sense. Because it seems like the Dragon Scroll was created in order to stop um, Ian McShane's character. Like, that's that's the whole point of the Dragon Scroll was to have enough power to beat this guy. At least that w- that's what it made it seem like. And it got to a point where it's like, yeah. Shifu is so powerful. And why isn't Shifu just the Dragon Warrior? Like, he ran circles around everybody else. It's like, why, why isn't this dude getting the, uh, getting that? promote it seemed weird that it's like nope he's just the master he's just here to train you but he runs circles around every other character um well i was gonna ask walter what he thought because you you said you like the fight scenes and i thought the fight scenes were really good you could almost argue this movie is just a kung fu movie that happens to be animated because it has so much kung fu yes. and like, has a really good story for a kung fu movie and mm-hmm. like shifu is I was just noticing like Shifu's fighting style is very like he's the master. Like he uh, it's not necessarily just being strong and powerful and the dragon warrior. There's always like a moment where you see his eye twitch and he like does something clever to win the fight. Like it's always a, and I think the difference between him and Tai Long is because he trained Tai Long and Tai Long has like lines where he's like, master Shifu taught you well but not everything. And it's like Tai Lung knows all these tricks and the way to think clever and like turn the fight. And it's not necessarily, it's like, I don't know. I think Poe has that sort of mirrored in 
Well, he's fat, but he has that mirror too. Even in the clever ways he's trying to get over the wall that are very Wiley Coyote and not, and could be just disguised as a kid's movie mm-hmm. thing. But then there's like, he's fighting Tai Lung and he uses similar, like I noticed he ties the tree down and tries to fling it over the wall. Very classic, like Looney Tunes antic of, you know, I'm going to use the palm tree to swing my, catapult myself over this wall. And then he fights Tai Lung and there's a scene where that he like, releases the palm tree and smacks the tiger right in the face and it's like he has that same shifu-esque like cleverness i guess i don't know just yeah, no, for sure sean i think yeah the fight at the end definitely mirrors uh poe and shifu's fight earlier in the film with the trying to get the dumpling like he's learned all his you know shifu's tricks by doing it his own way like being food motivated and everything But yeah, while I was researching this film, like originally it was just going to be a spoof. You know, they were going to just make it like another DreamWorks film. And then it was the co-director who was like, no, I want this to be, you know, taken seriously as a as a Kung Fu film to like fit in the can. Like Kung Fu films are, you know, so good. We we don't want to just spoof it. We want to honor the the culture that it comes from and, you know, give it heart and everything and have it well researched and everything. And I've got the perfect uh, so. sound I've got the perfect sound clip that demonstrates how they really wanted to respect the culture. <laughs> My tenders. Yes. <laughs> I wrote that down. <laughs> no, but um Sean, I, I feel like I, I shortchanged you. Wally sent us like a thirty minute clip of um this person breaking down all of the ways in which Kung Fu Panda kind of tries to um and I I would almost argue that it might not have been like intentional for what they argue mm-hmm. um, what they argue but because it was trying to reference all of these different Kung Fu movies it was like mm. it was this distillation of all these as- aspects of Confucianism and um uh Chinese culture um, I think well, and, and in in the spirit of uh, you know how occasionally trying to um, elevate uh, other voices and other creators, you know, um, their YouTube channel is significantly larger than any of our following. But just uh, making sure that uh, folks have an opportunity. Um, uh, oh crap! Hang on, I tried to pull it up here, and of course I get an ad, so I can't naturally. Um, uh, the, the YouTube channel uh, is uh, Jiren Zhejiao, uh, and the video is Chinese Cultural and Philosoph- Philosophical Inspirations in Kung Fu Panda. Um, Ryan's absolutely right. Did an excellent breakdown of, um, you know, Confucianism versus Taoism in the movie, um, cultural representation, and a lot of the background jokes based on Chinese characters and stuff in the, the movie. Uh, um, verbal puns that uh, uh, our, our audiences of our podcast probably would not pick up on. Um, yeah. So highly recommend checking that video out. Yes. And um, shoot, I was going to say something. Oh, um, I kind of that that kind of circles back to the first point I, I had made. But um, I do have a question for you. So, Sean, I know you watch um, you watch anime and I'm sure you you other guys have dabbled a bit, but you we 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 get these we get these um criticisms by people that you know there's like whitewashing in the film industry and stuff like that but you know when i when i watch a, an anime and it's dubbed and you know that the the voice actors aren't 
aren't from that cult. Like, I feel like animation in general seems to get a bit of a pass on that. Um, and I, I don't know how you guys kind you of mean feel a character about playing a Chinese panda could be voiced by like an American and it wouldn't be, it'd be well, that's, kind that's, of a gray area. That's one thing, but then you get all these dubs of, um, Japanese animes and like the there's another movie on this list um it's called uh weathering with you it's my number one film and you know I I enjoy both the sub and the dub of that and the dub is well and princess mononoke even um a lot of a lot of um these major motion pictures that are animation or Japanese animation are brought over and dubbed over by American American um voice actors and there isn't any sort of controversy about that. And it's interesting. I don't know. I, maybe this is a little bit too crazy a topic to discuss on this podcast. So, no, well, it's okay. I, I think these are important topics to address. Uh, I think it's worth stating up front that, uh, you know, I don't think the four of us are necessarily qualified to no. uh, accurately talk or speak for other cultures or portions of the, the uh, entertainment industry. Um, I do think specifically with reference to dubbed um dubbed foreign animation versus something like kung fu panda um a lot of the criticism i saw leveraged at kung fu panda was that the individuals who made the film were not uh or did not include um a significant population of individuals from the culture that the film was about so in the case of a dub you have a group of people that create something and then the dub actors are a small subset of the overall team as part of the creation process. Uh, the criticism with Kung Fu Panda, I don't think is necessarily that, you know, the voice actors were um, predominantly white or predominantly from the United States. The criticism was that for the first film, the majority of the production team from uh, directing, uh, producers, voice actors um, were um, uh, not necessarily, were, uh, acting outside of their wheelhouse necessarily you know it's good to be able to stretch but we have to make sure um as in all cases that we're being careful that it's not um appropriative and instead celebratory and i I think that's that's where the difference between um a film like kung fu panda where it was the full production team versus a dub group of a animation studio um i I think that's where the difference lies well and I'm sorry we're going off on this tangent, but um, Grant, I know one of your favorite animes of all time, uh, Steinsgate, one of the things you mention is that in the dub of it is that they Americanize a lot of the references. Uh, I would, I would uh, localize. Okay. And, and, and yeah, um, I, I stand by the, the fact that uh, localization is a team that works in conjunction with the primary production crew in order to adapt their original intents to a target audience's um, uh, more easily understood cultural references. Um, It's the the same thing that happens when things are dubbed overseas, you know, jokes, verbal puns, lines aren't translated directly. They are localized. So translated in a way that the intent of the joke lands, if not the, literal um word for word verbiage of it 
Gotcha. Once again, I'm talking out of my no, depth. But that's, and you're talking, that's what yeah. I would agree and concur, I guess. Like, you find mm -hmm. that in anime, in dubs and subs, I think is what Ryan was getting at, is you do get that localization or whatever it's called. You get just missed, or like add-on translations. Like, you'll <clears throat> the person in the anime might say a one-word response, and you'll see like a seven-word answer in the dub, and it's like, that's not what they said, but it, it provides the context that the culture is understanding that you're not because you're not of the culture. I think, yeah, I guess to tie it back into Kung Fu Panda, I think like it's not one thing about the movie. I mean, it's it's sort of the generalized caricature of Chinese culture that it's sort of pulling from, I think. That could be the root of yeah. everything. It's not informed. I mean, it, it's, it. I don't know. It sounds like Walter knows more about this, the, the tying into Kung Fu culture, which probably has more bearing than just nothing, but other things like the noodle dad is a duck and he's serving pig customers. And there's just like sort of caricatures of a general Eastern culture, I think that you see in this movie. Um, yeah, like the animals of the Zodiac and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like I found the specific quote I was looking for, like they wanted to make the characters comedic, but take the action seriously. And I think like that is really what brought me into the film when I first watched it. Like when Tai Lung's escaping from the prison, I think that's the best scene of the film. Yeah. Like they, that's where they really push their animation. There's just, you know, all kind of crazy camera angles. Like it just made me think like, this would be a fun, you know, action video game. And yeah. like, I mean, now I feel, we just see more action in our video games that are that are like this and even in our movies. And I think it all kind of started with this film and like, you know, it's kind of something, there's not that much action in this movie, you know, there's like maybe three or four like action set pieces. And I think, you know, um, I, I do like that, like the simplicity of like, well, I think the story is, you know, the through line and it's at the forefront and then it's, you know, peppered in with these beautiful action scenes to get you know through, through the whole movie and it's not overstaying its welcome unlike the next movie we're going to talk about <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right i mean sorry i don't want to just quickly yeah that was one of my big notes was that slow-mo chain cutting scene where he like pulls it off and the spear just comes flying down and cuts it that was such a dang cool shot you see the sparks mm -hmm. going and like yeah, you're you're absolutely right there, Wally. That is that is like the best, if not one of the or one of the best, if not the best action sequences in the mm -hmm. movie. And just they make to... it so magical. Like yeah. there's that they there's a hundred archers or something that that one part, and they fire a hundred arrows. They all do it in a line. Like just the little touches. It's not just shoot the arrows. It's like bub, 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 bub. Yeah. and then all of a sudden there's like a thousand arrows yes it's yeah. like that right. shot was but gorgeous it was gorgeous the thinking the the way you know a testament to the slow-mo like it the slow-mo sequences are done like they they must have just thought so much about how to capture the kung fu version of slow-mo like the, the the sort of scrub in scrub out of it like it's not just like you know rapid to half time they sort of like yeah yeah they knew when to slow it down you in yeah. facial expressions to really use the fact that this is animated you know to its advantage like i do feel there's a little obviously a little bit of dragon ball influences too in the action as well um especially with the facial features like if you go back and read like really early dragon ball especially they're really expressive in that 
And I think that's definitely, you know, mixed with the Looney Tune aspect of this movie. I feel like something I was going to say about the expressions when um, both Grant was talking about the father-son interactions where the, you know, he's egging him on and it's all facial expression based with a very little dialogue. Like that's, it's so strong. You capture those emotions. And then I really liked that Poe didn't just feel like a CGI panda Jack Black. Like when you look at his face, it's his, it's, it's Jack Black, obviously, but it just doesn't, I've seen you. So I'm trying to think of an example of the movie where it's just yeah, it's literally think, like. Well, it's another movie that Jack Black is in Shark Tales, where Will Smith's face is just on the fish's body. Like again, yeah. you know, years later they learned to fix that uncanny valley of like maybe Those, our anthropomorphic characters shouldn't just have celebrity faces plastered over. Yeah, the uncanny valley is a great reference here. It just didn't ever feel like that and i i think that was really great like just he felt if you didn't know who jack black was like you'd feel like poe that was his voice like you wouldn't just i think hear it as jack black yeah no great casting and like again to, to speak to earlier we were talking about like who is the main character and i feel like you know poe is the kid insert main character and when you grow up you know you relate to shifu more you can relate it to other cartoons too like when you're a kid you're like spongebob when you're an adult you understand why Squidward hates the world and everything, you know? <laughs> Grant, what were you going to say? I know we kind of went off on a bit of a tangent, and I think you had an idea. No, I was going to make a Sebastian the Whale Washing Dolphin reference. So it was it was stupid and not worth anyone's time, and that's why I moved past it, which is Jack Black's character in Shark Tale. He yeah. might be the shark, but he does a Sebastian thing that I always think is hysterical, but is... Uh, um, I did want to check in with our artists, though, Ryan, not to exclude you, but, um, uh, you know, an important part, I think, with a, an animated movie is that there is intent or reason for the animation versus doing like live action. Like, like I think if you're going to make an animated film, you really have to take advantage of all the, the flexibility and offerings that animation offer, or provides. Um, do you guys feel that this film leveraged animation well or you know is there anything that would prevent it from have working just as well as a live action you know kung fu movie with just jack black as a a tubby guy who learns his you know own version of kung fu i think they saw nacho libre and saw you know then live action him as a mexican luchador and they're like let's not do that with our with our <laughs> kung fu movie I think it would, be, yeah, it would be too close to Nacho Libre if it was just live action. And I think, I, Grant, I know you said excluding me because I'm not an artist, but thank you. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, well, no, I think to get to Grant's question, just to bulldoze the not artist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like I think. Sean, you're yeah. muted. Yourself, Sean. <laughs> On live air, how embarrassing! We've oh never had a guest do this before. That oh my was, god, Sean! That was sabotaged by the host. I wanted because <laughs> I was standing here with Not my artists. They're, they're crafty with their editing. Yeah, they're uh, anyway. <laughs> I just forgot my train of thought. Besides that, I feel like they really explored everything you could in the medium of the bouncy fat panda, the springiness of all the characters. I really like the subtle texture on the characters, like the fur is done. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm, I don't have the lexicon of movies to remember a awkward uncanny valley version of hair on an animal, but um, well, I'll get you Zootopia covered. maybe like 
you know, that that's like <laughs> way later in the, I think, timeline of CGI, mm-hmm. but they did a really good job, I think, here with for what they had. And like um, playing with things like, I don't know, I think of this sort of smoke scene, like the, this framing of scenes and the composition of scenes are thought through really well so that they're mm-hmm. not having to do too many leaps and bounds. They can stay within the art style to achieve what they're trying to achieve. The smoke in my background right here, like, you know, to hide the way Tai Lung escapes from the rope bridge trap. And it's like, they didn't try to do too much. They kept it simple. And that whole escape from the prison could be thought of like that. Like he's really doing simple Kung Fu, like escaping out of there. But it's the, it's the storytelling of that scene that really sells it. Well, and like, like I thinking about that scene in Kung Fu, Kung Kung Fu Hustle where he's fighting all those people and it's like it's pretty absurd. I think that this this movie it feels more realistic. Yeah. I agree. Like it's hilarious. I think but yes. Kung Fu movies almost needed animation to mm. to basically make the silly stuff that happens in them feel more realistic. Like if you got this big fat pan and he makes this obnoxious weird bounce after getting hit, it like you could do that in a regular kung fu movie. You know, I'm sure it has been done, um, but it there there is. I think this this movie used used animation really well to depict what kung fu movies wanted to be in a way that's both funny, entertaining, and feels realistic. Um, and looks realistic. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, as a non-artist, that's how I. And, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't no, mean to. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I I know we we are blessed with the rare opportunity of having both an animator and a, a graphic designer on on podcasts. So any chance I can ask about visuals, now's the time to do it. For sure, for sure. Do we talk about things we don't like about the movie? Absolutely, don't go away. That's of one of the course. best parts. Yeah. So I have like just a running. Oh, go ahead, Walter. Like, <laughs> say something nice. Say just me. to go back to the voice cast. Like, it it being whitewashed is one thing, and you know that is that is a problem too. But also, like, what sticks out even more in my mind is that this movie, you know, is still a problem that's going on with today's animated films of just having a celebrity voice for every single character. Like I get the main character, I get the bad guy, even the mentor being voiced by a celebrity, but the Furious Five did we really need a praying mantis voiced by Seth Rogen? Oh my god. I don't know. That could have been like three words. You get (laughs) you get the Seth Rogen laugh and that's all anybody ever wanted. It is, yeah, from the like (laughs) and it sounds like someone's turning the volume down on it. They're like, oh turn it down. <laughs> oh shoot! Can't wait to hear. Or like with that laugh, man. It's, it's like Lucy Lu- Lucy Lee could have been the uh, tigress instead yeah, of yeah, like, the snake and had more movie. lines. Like in and Jackie Chan could have been the, she's the monkey. Yes, like yeah, yeah. But that's I I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not I may be the artist, but I'm not the film person. I feel like there's so much in casting that you know maybe Jackie Chan was like I'll do three lines. And that's just all they could get. Like, yeah. you know, as much as they wanted him to be Poe, yeah. like he just wouldn't. Mm. I don't know. But I don't know any. I'm not a. He could film. have been Shifu and done great. I thought Dustin Hoffman as Shifu is whitewashed as it is. Like the gravelly old. Like it's 
believe yeah no he's perfectly casted as that character yeah and i i don't know okay sean get into your list (laughs) well i have a lot of like this is the this is a battle like i guess trans i don't know it's not my podcast but thinking about these two movies together was really fun because like i never yeah it's so weird weird (laughs) I, i feel like i came on this podcast as like the Lord of the Rings nerd was sort of my perspective. And I watched Kung Fu Panda last night and I feel like I just, I'm, I have a lot more to say about this movie. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've said everything I wanted to say already about Lord of the Rings. But anyway, like, I don't know. I made this my background. I'll just start there because one, probably the most problematic thing in this movie for me beyond anything is that the one reference they have to like biology of plant life here, they're committing like this egregious sin that I don't know if it's supposed to suspend your disbelief and make you believe in the magic more, or if it's, this is why I put it up here because I had so much to say about this. Is it grand symbolism for uh, Master Uguay? Because there is no way in nature to have flowers and fruit on the same tree at the same time because fruit comes from the flower flower blossoms into a fruit so it's just funny to me that they have blossoming peach trees or peach blossoms with peaches actually on them like it's spring and fall at the same time but then there's i was thinking this the whole time just like sort of livid during this scene and then (laughs) john is a permaculture expert guys i'm just a plant nerd and in, the scene ends with Master Uwe taking all the blossoms off the tree and floating away. And I was just like, wait, did they actually think about that really, really, really deeply? <laughs> or, or did they not think about it at all? And that was my number one. I, lo- I love in a movie of anthropomorphized talking animals, the, uh, the most unrealistic thing to you is tree ecology, it, incorrect tree ecology. yeah i don't know it was interesting um yeah i'm interested to hear what do you say about the ants and two towers then what do you think about that (laughs) those are fantastical creatures while their roots sink into the soil when they walk or when they when they like when they firm up to get splashed by the water you like see the roots go into the ground so they have a better hold like there there's some weird surprising details in those scenes but yes um oh i had one other thing okay before we move on how come nobody else goes to help shifu when <laughs> like <laughs> at the end of the battle the whole village like crowds around they're like good job po and then he's like master shifu and then he does he even animate yeah. in this like over the shoulder dead. look back like come on guys running away like and he runs up the thing and he's like master shifu and then I had a probably a similar moment to the peach tree where it's that he doesn't die. Like the, it, he could have so easily died in it than a sad movie, but he, they just add that. No, yeah, idiot. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just laying here. Just relax. I'm just resting. So maybe everyone else already knew he was fine. Which also <laughs> yeah, begs he's to being a little baby. question, why is he just not the dragon boy? <laughs> he's indestructible. <laughs> Okay, well, um, do, do we do we uh do we want to shift? Sure. Okay. Um, next up, we're talking about the two towers. Um, came out in two thousand two. Uh, the budget was ninety four million. 
Uh, it grossed $947 million. Directed by Peter Jackson, stars Elijah Wood, uh, Viggo Mortensen, Orlando Bloom, um, uh, a bunch of other people. Um, why am I blanking on Rudy's name right now? Um, oh, fuck, um, fuck, fuck. Austin. Oh, sorry for all three swears right here, but Ryan, I forgot. I have an in-between game here because we didn't talk about our favorite boy, our best boy. We didn't talk about Wayne Knight. So I welcome like to the middle game. Maybe you should chew on my face. <laughs> what was that, Grant? <laughs> welcome to the mid-podcast game, Wayne Knight or Wayne Not. All right, I've got three different shows slash films that Wayne Knight may or may not have been a part of at some point in his career. This is amazing. Uh, yeah, I tried to pick three pretty off-the-wall choices. So... Um, you've got to tell me whether it's yes, Wayne Knight or Wayne Not. All right, number one. Uh, while we're on the theme here of uh, kung fu, we have the TV series Shaolin Showdown. Wayne Knight or Wayne Not? Wayne Knight. Quinn. What? Wayne Not. Oh, I'm gonna go Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight is correct. Oh, he played yeah. several different roles in the show <laughs> Xiaolin Showdown. That's amazing. Because our boy is just a freaking hero. Um, <laughs> like also keeping on the uh the cartoon scene, we have uh Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Wayne Knight or Wayne Knott? Mm, I'm gonna say Wayne Knott on that Wayne one. Not. I swear if they're all Wayne Knight, I'm going to be Wayne Knight. <laughs> Wayne Knight. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. You're it. correct. It's Wayne Knight. All right. And for our last one, we have The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Wayne Knight or Wayne Knott? Wayne, Wayne Knight. Knight. I know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Also, or for Halloween. <laughs> also Wayne Knight. Yeah. He, uh, Wayne Knight had a surprisingly prolific cartoon career following his roles in uh, movies and Seinfeld. So uh, I, I felt bad we didn't talk about our bestest boy in the last podcast. So I had to make sure he came up this time. Yep. I really hope he's not a problematic person because I, I enjoy <laughs> like punching up at Wayne Knight. And if it turns out that he's like a real scumbag, I'm going to feel bad for, uh, you know. That should know. be your guys' merch. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope they're not a problematic person. Boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry no, thank you for letting me we're not qualified to talk about that show. <laughs> we're not qualified to talk about that it would be on the back yes we're not qualified <laughs> to talk about this but we really hope he's not a problematic person have the bracket like on sleeve or something yeah yeah no that's absolutely great grant and he was in this next movie he did do all of the sound effects and foley work for the orcs in this movie as i hinted at earlier <laughs> he's uncredited because he's humble but um, yes, yeah, so uh, in the Lord of the Rings, just know every single orc was voiced by Wayne Knight. I, what can you say about this movie? <laughs> I love the Two Towers. It's great. Uh, it's the, the dark and edgy middle, middle movie of a trilogy of, you know, starting pretty light and going dark and then kind of rebounding a bit at the end. There's, it, it has defined, uh, and just the Lord of the Rings in general has defined fantasy filmmaking or movie making um and tv show making um if anybody has been watching the wheel of time series on uh amazon prime you will see so many direct like oh 
this shot is something that Peter Jackson kind of pioneered in the Lord of the Rings, like the big, um, you know, helicopter, you know, tracking shots of people going across kind of an epic range of, um, epic range of land. Um, I, I would say this movie did it to an excess that I had not realized. Um, God, just the first 15 minutes, it's mostly just really wide shots of three people running across almost absurdly different landscape <laughs> to back to back to back. Um, they go from like being in a prairie to being like in the middle of a mountain lake, um, tracking these orcs. And I, yeah, I love this movie. I, I did know that there's a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, the first of which kind of as an overview being, this movie, the theatrical the theatrical cut was three hours long. That is absurd. And I remember hearing such a hullabaloo about Endgame being so long. And this movie is three minutes shorter than Endgame. And you know, you didn't I didn't hear much about it. And frankly, when I was sitting, I had a lot easier time sitting through Lord of the Rings than I did Endgame. Hmm. Um I don't know how you guys feel about that. I feel like I I mean, I can just jump into my notes if you want, but I'd like to get everybody else's kind of grant. This was also one of your picks, correct? Yeah. So I, I got it right at the top. I had a, a big um, sort of philosophical challenge with this movie mm-hmm. in that I brought it as one of my favorites too, because of, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this one's definitely my favorite. Sam's speech at the end I, is phenomenal and i carry it with me always i think it's one of the best in cinema um it's so so good but this movie suffers from being the second movie in a trilogy um where watching the movie on its own the the movie depends on you having a understanding of all the events that came before it you know as a standalone film the first 40 minutes would be completely unintelligible there is so much um fantasy world building and heavy lifting that's done in the first film that if you show up in the first 40 minutes and there's like three magic wizards a bunch of horse people running around we've got a dwarf and an elf that don't actually interact with the things we think they're hunting something but those groups never collide we don't know who they're chasing or why there is so much heavy lifting in the first film um, and I think for a, a sequel, that's okay. You shouldn't have to retell your first story in the second movie. Um, but then that made it hard to judge this film because how do I judge it? Do I judge it as a standalone film on its own? Do I judge it as part of one of the best cinematic trilogies of all time? Um, and so I, I kind of got stuck. You know, I've got notes about watching the movie, but how I actually feel about it as a best of all time film, I'm, I'm still up in the air because I don't know how to grade this thing. Right. You, you do realize, like, even if, you know, it might take a little bit to figure it out, you do realize these parties are connected, like the orcs carrying the hobbits. I mean, uh, Pippin rips off his little thing and throws it on the ground specifically as a, as a, hey, you know, we're still here, please find us, to yeah, the group. Quinn, the movie opens with a very tiny man dreaming about a very old man fighting a very fiery demon, a very old man of which isn't named, doesn't show up until an hour and a half later into the film. Um, like Gollum just yeah. shows like there is. They just so replay much... Moria, don't they? Isn't that how this movie starts? Yeah. 
It they replays, start playing Mario yeah. Mountain Man. You, you Frodo scream, and then you watch you watch a a a probably the weakest point of CGI in this movie. Um, like you, you, when it goes to that big wide shot of them falling into the pool. Um, <laughs> oh, I remember even, reading like, something about that. There's not even flames. Um, it's just like a weird like oh. like pen jot glow. Um, like somebody just went in with like a paintbrush on. The... Yeah, made very early after effects. Yes, exactly. But yes, Grant, you're absolutely right. For somebody just popping into this movie, unless you have, I mean, and I would say, unless you have a history of just watching fantasy movies, this is unintelligible. It is, yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. It's completely absolutely. absurd. You hear the weirdest name said. Um, watching this dude, yeah. Fight and die on a mountain, like everyone's father. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I think I was reading that too. This one is it was the third highest grossing film at its time of release. Like that was what they reached. Wow. Return of the King reached the second highest at its time. So whenever it released later, it reached the second. But I imagine so many people came to this movie, kind of to exactly what Grant's saying, to figure out the plight of. Mary and Pippin, essentially. That's sort of the dire straits. Frodo and Sam make off for Mordor, Mordor but like everyone wants, they, they sort of drive this narrative of what's happening to Mary and Pippin. You leave them hanging. And I think that's sort of what they give the audience in the end of the fellowship is we can't, you know, we have to go after them and that's all you get and then roll credits. So it, it does, it's frustratingly picking up with no context unless you're like, that people returning to see the plight. So it does, I agree. I think that's probably where a lot of my gripes with this movie, being a huge Lord of the Rings fan, hmm. just it's the second movie. You have to have a step two to get to the conclusion. And, but you know. there are some of the best action sequences and some of the like most interesting practical effects in this movie compared, like I think- Fuck yeah. And storytelling, <laughs> like uh, the deepest, some of the deepest like plights of man you the war of the ring begins in the two towers essentially with sauron or saruman putting uh attacking rohan at the the fords of eisen you see a very brief clip of the end of the battle of the fords of eisen at the beginning of this movie and that essentially is the beginning of real attack on man like the the world of men in this and and it's yeah, it's yeah. been it like in the fellowship, it was all about the um the fellowship of the ring. They were getting attacked by orcs. It didn't seem like there was a larger world being affected by the actions that they're taking. It's like orcs suck. Everyone knew that. They weren't <laughs> yeah. like subject to anything outside of being in the wilderness. But like and then, and then right off the bat, you get that immediate like, no, there's some like large scale consequences to the actions of the fellowship of the ring like them you know in the orcs interacting and kind of destroying the woods like all of isengard stuff all the stuff that happens oh, in on like you trick the influence of hobbits begins in this film as well like frodo and the and the hobbits are sort of baggage like throughout the fellowship they're being ferried and shuffled everywhere yeah in this movie i think the line even is like the trickling of stones that start an avalanche Mary and Pippin will bring something to Fangorn that has been seen for age or something. That's like the quote. And like, it's just, that's this part of the movie where they, they really start to 
have big influence by their very nature of being different from the rest of this world they're inhabiting. Well, and you get to see the effects that the ring actually has. Like you, mm-hmm. you don't realize in the Fellowship of the Ring how horrible the ring actually is. Like Frodo doesn't doesn't have that interaction with the ring as much, and you don't get to see the like Gollum comparison of like this is what it does to you. like you get it a little bit in Moria, but you don't really come face to face with it until you meet Gollum, and then you see Frodo's descent into becoming Gollum. Like when he's captured by um. Sorry, I'm jumping around like crazy. But um when he's captured by the um crap, what are they? The Rangers. Yeah, Faramir. Faramir. Um and his reaction to like not like running away and huddling in a corner to protect the ring, it's just it's so it's so gollum and you just see like how horrible this thing is and how quickly it corrupts. And mm-hmm. I yeah, I uh it's grant you're absolutely right like it is a tough thing to both love this movie for all that it does but also understand the faults of it not being able to fully and i'm getting the bad stuff out of the way so i can just like glorify it (laughs) the second half of the podcast um because i think my my one other challenge with it being a a sequel film too is a lot of the driving focus for the characters is missing um you know i I think the the scene that really stood out to me as an example of this is about three quarters of the way through um when uh mary and pippin are getting ready to leave fangorn forest and give up and um uh you know um uh pippin gives that whole line about well we can't go home because if war comes they're gonna burn all the you know they're gonna burn this forest and this forest and all that's green and good and the world will die and they talk about we're people of the shire there there'll be no shire to go back to um the trouble with this film is we never see the shire you you know we never see in flashbacks in it, it was all front loaded in that first film so we have a lot of people fighting and defending something that we've never seen, whether it's, it's the, the Elven cities um, or the, the, the Shire, the, the, the Dwarven mines and seeing how they've come to ruin all the stuff that we are fighting for up until this point, we haven't actually seen in this film. Yeah. Like the um, Faramir is like, I need the ring for Minas Tirith. It's like, okay, what the hell is Minas Tirith? I like you don't realize until the last movie. Oh, it's the fucking like capital of the world of man. It is. It is. Flashbacks like, and fellowship to Minas Tirith. But they don't tell you. But, it's, they don't tell you it's Minas Tirith. I think they're. I see. I'm so. I watch the extended edition so often. I don't know if it's <laughs> extended or not. But the whole Gandalf goes back to Minas Tirith in the first movie to research the ring. And they show some scenes of Minas Tirith, but Boromir, I think, elaborates more. Have you seen the White City? Yeah. I've been there many times. Like, um, yeah, it just like a lot of things in this movie, it's, you have to have, there's a lot for the reader of the book or of the, the story to sort of find. Yeah. And I think more than the other movies, Two Towers really has to lean on more movie kind of i don't want to call them tropes but just movie dynamics more so than book dynamics and the kind of rich world of tolkien in this movie because there isn't you know in the first movie like sam sees the 
elves for the first time and they're going to Rivendell. There's so many races and, and magic of this world you haven't seen yet. It's like watching the first Harry Potter. It's like, it's never going to feel as magical as that first one where he walks into the hall and the pumpkins are like the pumpkins float in every movie after that. It's not the same vibe. As, and I think in this movie, it's like you have the Legolas Gimli dynamic of friendship building and sort of the action, the counting, I think starts this movie, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You have the, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, there, it has to pull on some more, story like storytelling dynamics that are movie based and i think you lose, you lose, you lose the that. innocence of the hobbit's eyes of seeing this brand new unique world that they've never been a part of like you you all the veneer that came with the hobbits meeting the elves for the first time and seeing all these incredible new lands like that's all gone mm-hmm. there's no more amber colored filter or rose colored rose tinted glasses to show oh this world is magical it's like no this world's fucked up like yeah it felt magical but it's not like the realities of the world is it's kind of like our world like there's aggressive conflict there's environmental stuff there's you know it's i think this movie is a harsh reality that i think a lot of fantasy movies don't lean hard enough into or they don't like there's too much they they i guess they don't they keep that rose or that yeah rose tinted glasses on throughout all of these hardships and i think it detracts from the actual gritty human realism of of the worlds that these people have created yeah that's a that is a really good point ryan i will say that this you know, might have been the first fantasy film to take fantasy, you know, elements and treat it with that grittiness, that real worldness that really elevates the fantasy elements and makes it a fantastic picture out of it. You know, people will take it seriously now. Like, I really feel, you know, it's the Empire Strikes Back of the Lord of the Rings films, you know. That's a great, yeah, it's a great way to say it. I I do want to jump back to Sean, one of your points where you're talking about um, sort of the, the translation of the books to film. Um, and, and frankly, I, I prefer the movies to the books. You know, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the books, but I like the pacing in the movies a little bit better. Um, one thing I did struggle with watching this time around, you know, actually trying to watch the film with a critical eye instead of just reveling in it like yeah. I normally do um, was the, contrast in the dialogue between um the book the book quotes and the spoken movie dialogue the the one that really jumped out at me was legolas's they run as if the very whips of their masters are behind them followed immediately by gimli saying breathe the key is just to breathe as he's running and it you know it it goes from a flowery flowery token um fantasy delivery immediately to like base level movie script dialogue um there, there weren't too many instances of that but there were enough that i noticed it and it, it it really stuck out to me on this watching i i love you saying that grant because one of my big notes was i think this movie more than any other movie started this whole trend that marvel has just latched onto where you need to throw in the crazy one-liners in any insanely serious situation 
Like just the, I mean, the counting that Sean mentioned, like that's absurd. Nobody's ever in the heat of battle. Nobody's going to just be counting, but then you oh. get the mad lads from Liverpool of. The, but that's one of, of my favorite parts. It is, but it's. <laughs> yeah, it's it levity in the movie. You it hasn't been beaten like a whiny to death at this moment. Mm-hmm. Watching this movie to the point where Marvel now has made a monopoly on taking the stuff that just felt a little bit more organic in this movie um, and taking that and just commercializing it to an absurd degree. I feel like the, the witty banter between Legolas, Aragorn and Gimli, um, like when he's, when Aragorn has to throw Gimli across the gap to get him onto the bridge, he's like, don't tell the elf. It's like, there's, yeah, that, that does feel like a Marvel line for sure. <laughs> you build the camaraderie between these three in this movie, you know, really, it solidifies it and if you think that like actually if you watch the fellowship afterward or this it's almost like a jarring like there's not as much kinship when you have the whole fellowship together which is kind of funny it's the it's the the breakdown of the fellowship that really allows the, these three to develop the character dynamic and like you that's what's carrying the movie more it's realistic so it's yeah realistic that's that you care more about the plight of these three characters and, and it, I did think it's something interesting and it's just maybe a flaw with the original story, but like, and, and translating it to movie is like, they sort of tease you a lot in this movie of deaths, like people who don't die, like supposed, like supposedly dying. And I was, I don't know, I got into a huge track sitting here on my couch last, or when I watched this movie thinking like there could have been other characters who fell off the cliff or were taken by the orcs or something that would have been more like, I don't know, a kicker, but that's just, that's how it went. But you sort of are worried about Marion Pippen for a while. And then you're like, okay, no. And then you're like worried about Aragorn for a while. And then you're like, okay, no, not Aragorn. And it's Gandalf in the first movie. It's like, you're just perpetually dangling the fake death in front of everybody. It's the, the, allows, um, I don't know if George it's George R. R. Martin. It's what oh, George yeah. R. R. Martin made famous in uh, the Game of Thrones Game books. Of Thrones. Yeah, it's is that. He actually, actually kills them. them. Exactly. And that's yeah. where it's like, it, it works it, for TV but, and movie. But that just need that was done specifically in response to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yes. Like J.R.R. Martin's yeah. been been very explicit about that. That this is his dark, gritty response to the um, wins, hopeful kinda. but mournful Lord of the Rings. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you kind of have the characters develop it. Like the story brings you in with fellowship. It's why my it's my favorite one. Like. I think out of the three, it's definitely Fellowship. Um, and why and I don't like, like Two Towers as much is because it's just so much, it's almost like a war, it's a war movie kind of about being in the trenches and being totally hopeless. Um, you're hopeless because the, they, they're getting away with Marion Pippin. You're hopeless because you're lost and can't get into Mordor. You're hopeless because your king is, you know, poisoned by a wizard or you're stuck in in siege in your country it's the book but is Sean, very much but there's always hope that's the theme of the movie congratulations <laughs> no, i mean that's very end when it's you super freaking at the very end i just mean that's the driving narrative whereas in lord of the rings it's or in fellowship it's very much an adventure it's the echo of the hobbit kind of and like and i'm not saying it's better or worse you need that's part of, this is just part of the story but um it's definitely kind of it takes a step away from that first harry potter realm of magic and goes right into just this is fucking middle earth and it is not good right now <laughs> like and we're we're gonna talk about that for a movie for three hours 
John just loves the permaculture uh, ideas that the hobbits do in the Shire. Like Shire, I just 15 minute Shire rewind program. that part where they're like, and they have a love of things that grow. And it's <laughs> Sam holding the flower. I just rewind that for two hours. And then I say, I watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway. I do think um, I, I, I am going to start transitioning to more of an advocate for this film because I do truly love it. I, I do think some of the things it does well is transition between all the different perils. Um, the the intro shot, uh, Quinn, I think I know you're going to dunk on this, um, but the thing that really got me was the costuming. You know, in the intro shot, we have this dramatic holy battle between an old undying man and a giant evil fire-breathing demon. And then the very next shot is the two hobbits getting up, breaking camp. And then you see Samwise Gamgee hiking with a backpack full of pots and pans and blankets. And it, it that, yeah, that costuming immediately takes you out of that. You, you know, you got the introduction to the high fantasy battle of, oh my God, this is life or death stakes. But then we get put into the actual thick of it of, this is also just, a hard ass hike and you know we need to figure out how are we getting food and where are we going to sleep and how are we going to hide and and i think the the uh they do a fantastic job of using the costuming and sets and music oh my god the use of music in this movie to shore is a transition people between all these different plot threads without losing you too much in the process yeah, I think the only time, Grant, that's a great point. I, like I said, Howard Shore, who did all the orchestrations for these movies and did The Hobbit as well, was just a, a exceptional musician and an exceptional composer to get this so well. Um, I think the only time where the transitions felt like, like arresting or like, you know, scratch, stop, like, sort of, was during the Battle of Helm's Deep where it kept also just cutting back to Merry and Pippin talking to the tree ants and it's like, they're so slow. Oh, nothing gets said fast. And then all of a sudden it's like, Gimli's dying. He's drowning in a fucking pond. Why are we cutting to this? There's it, that, that moment. I, I understand why they did it. And it kind of, it led, it led to like a continued climax of you see what happens at Helm's Deep and then you immediately cut to the battle for Isengard. And so it's it's a way to get these two seminal climaxes of the movie to correspond with one each one another. And it just for me, it fell short of like being a smooth transition between the two, just because you're going from Merry and Pippin talking to uh Treebeard and the rest of the Ents to these incredible battle scenes. And I Grant, you're right, though, the costuming, I mean, the the practical effects, like those orc costumes and stuff just are spectacular. And like, like, it just, they feel like real, real people or they feel like real creatures. And yeah, the the orc costuming and makeup work, it holds up easily. The CGI mm -hmm. backgrounds in this movie were painful. Um, but my God, the, the practical effects, costuming uh, yeah. was phenomenal. Yeah. It was those orcs that scared the shit out of me when I first saw this in theaters at, at nine years old. I was like, I'm ready to leave. These things are <laughs> freaking me the fuck out. And, ready and, to go. 
Ryan, I don't want to move off the, the music too quickly um, just because, uh, you know, my favorite scene in the movie is still Legolas fucking surfing down the stairs, shooting yeah. arrows into the <laughs> Um, but on this rewatch, the scene that really stood out to me from like a cinematic standpoint was the contrasting scenes between Theoden getting suited up to go to battle and Aragorn. And when when Theoden's getting suited up, he's got that holy light behind him. Like he's supposed to be this majestic king, but his speech is like, where's the horn that was blowing? They've passed like rain in the mountains, like wind in the meadow. His whole background music is all quiet strings drums it is hopeless it is mournful even though he is the one backlit like a hero next scene cut to aragorn the horns come in the music swells it is heroic he is lit like all the other soldiers in the room you know it is just top-down lighting tons of shadows but he is strapping up and it is all the instruments that were missing in theoden's all the hope the energy the drive is in his scene. And it was so cool to see the two Kings preparing in such different ways, just like the, you know, the, the, the duality of this movie, the two Kings, the two towers, the two ancient races that have to contend with their mistakes between the ants and the elves. I think the whole, the, the, the theme of duality in this movie was really well done in the, the two Kings suiting up both to go face the same battle, but with a, a different um, a different fire, a different driving force. Yes, and I think Theoden's like hubris in like his, is this all they can manage? And then you immediately see <laughs> this man is like, does not comprehend the severity of like the enemy he's facing and Aragorn does. And you see like what a true king is in Aragorn who's on the front lines. He's not hiding behind the big wall. And he doesn't he doesn't poke at the bear of the orcs and being like, is this all you can create, Saruman? This is nothing. And then immediately the bomb goes off and like he has that shell shock moment. And but Aragorn just like Sean, I know you mentioned that duality between like um the different plot stories too and like what the two towers kind of were, how there's that duality for you too, is that there's so much duality in this movie of like how to rule or how not to rule and why Theoden was corrupted so easily by the dark. Um, you see, yeah, the, I, it's funny you mentioned the ancient races grant, because I don't know if you knew this, the elves never were actually at Helm's deep in the book. No, oh, Ryan, you kept saying that. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought we weren't supposed to talk about the book. No, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> it, it happened. but it's interesting because it adds, it adds a level to the fact that Grant with the Ents and the the um, the uh, Elves and like these ancient treaties that were talked about and one was broken and one was upheld. Um, well, more so than that, like I, I think it ties into the the real uh, eco warrior vibes I got from the movie this time around and and like the global warming fight. And the interesting thing was seeing how this film um, the the reflection of the modern day of um you know the previous generation um through industry or lack of care just ignoring and and being uh, staying in their own little bubble um allowed power to corrupt and destroy and, and ruin the world and the generation that comes next the era of man so the elves create these powerful weapons and tools that allow 
this terrible destruction of um, civilizations and of the the earth itself, um, and then just fucking up and leave. You know, it's it's the boomer moment of that, you know, let's make a whole bunch of legislation that we're not going to have to deal with ten years from now because we're going to be dead. Um, let's fucking burn all the fossil fuels and everything or ignore that it's happening and then just leave this trash fire for the younger folks to now clean up after us. And, you know, we, we see both the, the active working against in the elves and just the, the passive um, ignoring of the issue with the ends, you know, we see them have to confront it and try to help, but, you know, is it is it too late? Is it not too late? Well, you be the watch good. the movie and find out. I guess. Yes, Sean, what were you gonna say? Well, I just I I, I can see um, the movie perspective. The elves are the elves are very used. They very they don't help a lot, right? And they're leaving Middle Earth, and it kind of feels like you know Neo's logging off the Matrix. Like you're just not. You could have had a, a lot more help. Um, and it is, it's interesting that the elves weren't at Helm's Deep because I remember being a kid and even seeing the scenes where um, I don't remember the captain of the elves guard who it's dies. Hadrir? Hadrir, Hadrir, something. Yeah. Who's not, who's, I don't remember his kinship to Elrond or whatever the. He's in, the Galadriel. He's related to, um, he's related to Legolas actually. Like he's uh, Elf of okay. Lothlorien. Um, you see him. For basically in the books, if he's Lot Florian, he's not of El- of Legolas's descent because the- Legolas is of Merc. He's a Wood Elf. And then you have the High Elves. Of- you have the High Elves of of Lord Florian. Um, but you're sort of like they die, and there's the the slow pan shot of their bodies, and it's like this was a you know you sort of look at them like a it's almost like a unicorn dying, and it's like mm. in the sort of cause of this hopeless cause of man, and it's like. In the book, I think, well, I don't know. I guess I was just long-windedly yeah. poking no, back that's... at the fact that it's not really the elves that who, who fossil fuel destroyed the world. It's Melkor and Sauron. No, but the and... elves forged the ring. No, oh, they didn't. Yeah, it was an elf that forged the ring. Yeah. Sean, have, I... you, have you not played Shadow of Mordor, you sick fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't... It was an. It was, was similar. The guy is similar. Kerabrimbor. 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 Yeah. Kerabrimbor. Isn't that Galadriel's son? Oh, a bunch husband? of nerds. No, it's <laughs> it's her like ancestor. But yes, the elves. I thought the elves forged the rings, and then Mel and then Sauron forged his own that they were all tied to. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what? I'm wrong. So, Fucking, I I rescind my metaphor. No, that's- I fucking uh I needed to do more research. Oh, son of a bitch. Grant, Grant, I think no, I think you're right because like you also have this other ancient race in the wizards, and you see the dichotomy between the wizards that want to, you know, encourage the people and the the wildlife of the earth to thrive and you know live in harmony with well uh, they were sent with a very specific mission to guide. Yes, mankind, but not to to do more. Not to, so you know, I think you see, you see Sauron betray that. Yes, and turn to this industry and yeah. not caring about the world outside of. I'd say Saruman is the industry is the analogy Saruman. for the yeah. fossil fuels, and you get it with the the same tree scene being ripped to the ground from the Fellowship, and because uh, they put that same tree scene just mirrored, 
where the oak gets really? ripped down yeah into the into the pit um yeah he really turns on the forest which creates the i think the the narrative for the ends to rise um and so grant you you, you you misplaced that on the elves but it is an ancient race in the west yes. so you you nailed it you were just slightly off but you do get this scene this was gonna say like when gandalf i think it's really interesting you have gandalf sitting there at the beginning right in the opening where he's hanging on the ledge from fellowship and he's like fly you fools and it's like this old man he's almost useless he can't even pull himself up he knocked the balrog down but whatever like (laughs) up to that point he's just like the troublesome storm crow you know and he in his descent like as he's falling it's terrible cgi whatever he turns to that sword and he becomes the badass wizard the, of the Maiar, like the lesser, he's basically a lesser demigod in this pantheon. He just can't use his powers to do too much, essentially. And I think you just have this scene where the fellowship turns and he's just him in this primordial fear of his own. And he, be, he like, beca- I don't know. I think it's... He becomes a badass. Like, he becomes the badass instead his, of the troubling wizard, the troublesome you see wizard. his true power. You're yeah. able to see his true power and that flash of it's like, yeah. It's just my defense of they, they could do more, but they, they're not supposed to. Um, Sar- Saruman totally just bucks the trend and does, yeah, he's the, the global warming, I think. <laughs> I, I also want to continue to uh, uh, give this movie props for giving its male characters feelings. Um, I'm going to try to avoid the whole masculinity <laughs> and femininity, uh, femininity mistake that I keep making. Um, but I love that this is a movie with a bunch of badass dudes in it and they hug each other. They mourn each other's deaths. They hold hands when they're scared. They freaking like, kiss each other when they like it is it is a bunch (laughs) of badass dudes but none of them are afraid to show their feeling it's like this is the kind of um healthy masculinity yeah the 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 cinema that you want to show people to to show them what you know what a a hero what a a a good person can look like that you don't have to be stoic to be a hero i i it's something i come back to in these movies all the time is i i love how expressive and open these characters are not just asking for help, but offering it, sharing their feet. You know, they they openly argue and disagree. And it's it's not just stoic grunts and quips and one-liners. It's people actually connecting and disagreeing and supporting each other. And it's it's fantastic. The one problem I hated with that was when they're preparing for the battle at Helm's Deep and uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are like in the suit up room and all these guys are getting ready and they're just fucking ripping in. These people are scared. They're not ready for war. And they're just saying this out loud to this group of horrified people. They're saying it in Elvish and then Aragorn gives it away at the end. But they like, they drop drop Elvish pretty quick and Legolas just shouts out like, they're not ready for this. They're babies. But that's because Legolas is scared too. Everybody's the scared. Right? Like, oh, these misquotes, <laughs> these misquotes are bothering me, guys. <laughs> he goes, Neka Teka Thaya. And then everyone goes, then I will die as one of them. So that's the only time it's English, I think. Sorry, I'll just remember like, the elf line I had to say. Is- <laughs> <laughs> do you do you speak fluent Elvish, Sean? No, that that just came to me um in a moment of 
clarity. <laughs> nice. So this, is, this is turning out to probably be one of our longer podcasts. Um, but I, I will say I want to run through. There was a fucking Wilhelm scream, and I've never been happier. Yeah. <laughs> is that the guy off the ladder? Yeah. When yeah. He gets ripped yeah. off the ladder, and you just get that yeah. lovely Wilhelm scream. Um, oh, I want to say to Grant, just one thing to Grant, like, the, the feelings of the emotions. Even I, I spread somewhere, I can't take credit for this, but someone pointed out that Screamer Wormtongue even isn't just after um, Aomi. Aomir? Aeo? Aowen? Aowen. He has the scene where he's like talking to her and he's using his speechcraft or whatever. But he demonstrates that he doesn't just want to get some. He understands her fears and the, the things she's scared about. And it's, <laughs> it's not blossoming as a warrior and just being... Uh, Dying a cold woman. Worm worm tongue walked so that the guy from you could run. I don't know if any of you, (laughs) but um, pretty. Well, even Creamer in the deleted scenes too, or the extended scenes. There's like a moment, or it's not in the deleted scenes when he's up there with Saruman and they see the army for the first time. No, like when they and he realizes sort of. I I just wanted to sleep with Eowyn, but. He's like, what the fuck? I'm ending the man- race of mankind. I just, just I bet you're it. wondering how I got here. <laughs> how I met your mother. How I met your mother. No, but I think um one thing we haven't talked about was <laughs> just the, the memeability of this movie. Um oh, like I just have so many quotes that I constantly use and I, I want to play them. Um the first is something that relates to our family's uh experience the past week. Uh Sean. Um, what happened to Brad a couple weeks ago? He <laughs> failed. He failed. Oh, you talked over it. Oh, but but the emotion in that delivery. I actually have a note as that one yeah. word being one of the strongest line reads in the whole film. It is. It is. You feel such hurt in uh in his voice. It's just like he's telling this woman who he knows is super infatuated with this guy that the guy's dead. Um. But um, oh, still yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. But so Brad fell walking out of a tree stand oh, and got yeah. a stick through his nose. So that was oh, the no. joke. Is that we were gonna tell <laughs> mom that he fell? Um, he's fine. It wasn't anything. He just has a nose piercing. Send it to the group chat. So but um, it. oh god, <laughs> no, it's um, bad. Yeah, the um, memeability of this movie, the one-liners. The taking the hobbits to Isengard. He fell. Uh, you've got the like deleted scenes where uh, Mary and Pippin are smoking the weed, the pipe weed. Oh yeah, I wish that was that was great. It's not in the movie, movie, but you guys, you got like lots of great. You aren't gonna go with Gollum's "Give it to me wet and wriggling." That's a good one. That's one of the best lines. Potatoes, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. uh, there's a moment where they where where uh, Gollum is like playing with the fish, and he like looks back, and he looks like kind of like a cute puppy for one second. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, we haven't mentioned that this was like critically acclaimed for the time for CGI for yeah, Gollum. Specifically. I'm I'm devastated that these movies didn't come out prior to um prior to the um prequel trilogy of star wars and that this movie couldn't have been like the first motion capture things rather than it being jar jar binks being <laughs> the first yeah. mocap character 
Um, I think this movie does CGI remarkably better and pretty, pretty soon after um, the yeah. Phantom Menace. When it comes to Gollum, I feel the only thing that really aged, like when he first is showing up and he's climbing down the mountain, like it looks great. The only thing is like with the shadows, it doesn't actually look like he's on the rock. Yeah. It looks like he's floating a little bit. Which is funny because they did that practically. Like it was like Andy Circus <laughs> Andy Circus did that motion. Like it, it wasn't Yeah. Like yeah. He, he was harnessed. So you'd think that they'd at least maybe they just tried to get too intense and cropped out his shadows and put in golems. Um but yeah, I know like that was the one thing is that they did so much stuff practically that like I mean the ends the ends did not did not age well. Um I did, yeah, they always look kind of funky though. I do love that they have like face stuff. Like the dude that was on fire had a mustache, like a big squishy yeah. mustache, and then he stuck his. They head were the head. most fantasy of this movie. Yeah, just the I think they feel I in the in the vibe enough for my, me at least as a casual, not harsh CGI criticizer that like it felt <laughs> for a graphic designer. Maybe that's off off character, but like. They have that quirky, almost Tim Burton-y kind of tree vibe that I think just fit Fangorn. Yeah, yeah. But Uncanny was, Valley. Like, I think... Sure, I think yeah. Part of the Uncanny the Valley. The eyeball shine was a little weird. Um, mm, might yeah. be like a source, if I pinpoint something. I, um, I think part of the Uncanny Valley is just realizing that we will never understand how these creatures will look in real life. And these, this is probably a good summation of what they actually would feel like like i think the uncanny yeah. like i don't know it's a hard a living tree would be weird to look Wait, at hang on ryan the uncanny valley is explicitly knowing what something would look like in real life the uncanny valley is something looking very very similar but not yeah it's quite it's like right. a sensation it, it looks so realistic as to to match like that part of your brain that's like oh yeah this is i know what this is but then there's just enough off that you're also unsettled it's like a dissonance kind of a feeling i think more than a like it's a phenomenon where you're yeah. perceiving something as human but it's not it's it's like grant just like you said it's like taking two parts of your brain one that's saying human and one that's like what <laughs> yeah and it, it causes almost like a deja vu type phenomena for like mm. dissonance i think almost gimli's getting it in my background image right now where his his face looks so prosthetic right now um, like when I realized in the wide shots that it was like a stunt actor, forgive me, I could not unsee that for every every single wide shot, it's that stunt guy. And then all the up close shots is John. How fucking like the the stunt actor for Gimli or like the wide shot actor for Gimli was hauling fucking ass in yeah. the <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> dude was running so hard to catch up to the it's it's absurd. He like tore his meniscus and has permanent issues. I think the actor who the, the the stunt double for Gimli because of the running scenes, because he had to run so aggressively to keep up with the vibe of keeping up with a <laughs> ranger and an elf. And then uh, Vigo Mortensen injured himself kicking oh, the helmet. Everybody knows that he broke his toe. Oh, that's I, like I the, didn't know that until most, today. the most well-known. <laughs> Uh, oh, is it? movie injury ever and then someone else gets yeah. injured and I don't remember who that was though Vigo screaming in like guttural pain because he actually just smashed his toe on a helmet yeah I don't know Vigo Mortensen can hurt me anytime he wants to that's one fucking <laughs> beautiful man mm -hmm. 
I heard there's like the stories on set that they used in the fellowship where they used to headbutt. He, Viggo Mortensen was headbutting everybody. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> like, what? Like him in the New Zealand, all the z- doubles who played <clears throat> orcs were like New Zealand mm. like bodybuilders and stuff. So they were like big tough guys, I guess. And Vigo and them kind of, but they they be, they became close on set. Him and all the stunt doubles or all the, the the bigger orc guys. And one thing they just picked up, I don't know where it came from. I guess I heard this in the commentary or something. Was they would like you you like kind of grab each other by the head and like do a headbutt against each other, and it's brutal. But I guess it became a thing where Vigo was doing it to so many people that he like does it to Orlando Bloom, and it just like was a problem yeah. <laughs> like it didn't go con- over well yeah, yeah he got a concussion, he a concussion or, or something like well, a, vigo, vigo was like the wildest like he would go fly fishing in between takes he bought a bunch of the horses that they used that he used during this because he just That's had amazing. such a he had such a connection with the horses he used to just wear his costume to the bars in town, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, like That's he would cool. go. Yeah, I think. Yeah, they. All got, right, best I, of all time. Uh, <laughs> get out of here. I mean, yeah, Vigo really was was just like he he was having a blast on and off set. So That's it was just so great. Um, like the Return of the King, baby. I'm well, guys, <laughs> we have fucking destroyed both of these movies. Uh, yeah. to an extent, I did not expect. Um, are we are we okay to uh? To get into the vote sure okay um who wants to start i'll kick it off okay um so i like i said at the very start i really struggled trying to determine how do i grade this movie because this is the best of all time and um with lord of the rings uh the two towers being a second film really hurts it to be a standalone best of all time film um, but it it was part of a fantasy franchise that literally defined portions of my childhood. It spawned the greatest movie spinoff PS2 video game of all time. Yes, yeah. Um, it's hands deep level. Yeah, uh, it uh, the the soundtrack. I do think the Lord of the Rings soundtrack is the best movie soundtrack ever made. Um, Kung Fu Panda was uh, an impressive animated film. Um, I think the casting for that movie was excellent. I love Jack Black in the role. Um, but I do think personally, I, I, I think there are other stronger DreamWorks offerings um, like How to Train Your Dragon. And, and um, uh, I honestly would even you love Shrek more there. Brain, I, I, brain might, brain. <laughs> I might, um, but a, I, I think, um, and I, I think of all the movies we've done so far, this one has my heaviest personal bias, uh, but I got to give it to Lord of the Rings, uh, Two Towers. Well, okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't have a long-winded, I don't think, answer because I feel like I talked a lot, but I will say in conclusion, thank you for having me on the podcast. It was super fun. I'd like... Uh, Lord of the Rings and talking about movies and I think I really like Kung Fu Panda again after watching it recently um, and I think yeah to echo what Grant said like this is the best of all time and I think I'm approaching this one like you would like a basketball bracket you know it's it's what's happening on the court on the floor right now between these two teams and between these two teams right now these two movies best of all time I have to give it 
to Kung Fu Panda <laughs> for being one of the yeah. like a really great story around charismatic characters, you know, bringing the Kung Fu elements into it really fun as one encompassing movie. I feel like it achieved something in a smart package that, that still holds up and is, is a great movie. And I think the two towers just, just falls short because it isn't the best movie of all time. It's the best filler between two great movies that needed to happen because it, I just don't think a, a, see a second movie when it's got a, you know, it's got to lose so much of what's great about the first and, and third movies to carry it through because there's just so much that has to go happen. It's a big battle. And I just think Kung Fu Panda has more heart. And Damn. I, all it, right. That's yeah. great. That's an honest answer, I think. <laughs> Fucking disgusting. <laughs> I came, you know, I came on this podcast definitely as the Kung Fu Panda stand. I mean, you know, I did pick it. And I do feel when it comes to Lord of the Rings, you guys are definitely more of the fantasy guys. I mean, I feel you guys had a lot more to say about the movie in general than than I did. So I'll get, you know, a few few points out now. Like, you know, I, I did love this movie upon rewatching it. You know, I just, you know, am thankful for how much this movie in particular did for fantasy in general, for like taking it seriously and everything. But like with that in mind, you know, I would argue that maybe it's been done better since then in a longer format in something like Game of Thrones. And particularly for this film, I was kind of spoiled a few months ago. I watched like maybe the last two hours of this movie, the extended cut. And I feel that's the ideal way to watch this movie. You know, I, you, you know, feel we weren't presented with the proper way to view this movie, you know, with it being the theatrical cut, especially, you know, rewatching it like the later half there's so many like quick cuts especially when Faramir first gets them you know like a guard is talking to him and he's interrogating you know Frodo and then the next scene they're sleeping and then Faramir wakes him up he's like oh I got something to show you because they were like looking for Gollum um so I just feel yeah like as far as a movie maybe this wasn't you know the ideal way to tell the story it pushed so many boundaries it broke you know broke so much ground it was groundbreaking for the time it's still a fantastic movie to this day but um for for kung fu panda i got another quote from one of the animators of the film dan wagner the head of character animation told his animators you'll be working on a lot of dump dumpers for your career but every once in a while you'll get a gem and kung fu panda was a gem so i'm going with Kung Fu Panda. Damn. That was that was excellently said, Wally. Um I I I am I am very much struggling because on one hand, I think compared to the rest of the movies in our bracket that have the same basic premise as Kung Fu Panda, which are a lot because that's Grant's mo favorite movie apparently. Um, whether it's giant robots or fighting on horseback with jousting, um, it's basically the same format, just done in a different way. Kung Fu Panda does it better than either of those other two movies. Um, <laughs> it's muted, but um, he, he's getting mad. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think, you know, 
looking at this as like, okay, yeah, this movie is going up against Real Steel in the next round. Um, do we really want to have on two movies that are basically the same premise, have a father-son dynamic addressed and, you know, that evolution of those younger characters as being a, a pivotal point? Um, I don't want that. I don't think that's representative of, of what movie culture is. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with some of the criticisms these guys have said about um, Lord of the Rings Two Towers. I think... Yeah, it is it is pretty um pretty, you know, impossible to get into if you don't know anything about the story. Um it is it is very long and isn't edited as well as I think it could be. But I mean, Grant said it really well with how impactful the music was to this movie. Um how impactful it was for the genre like Wally said. Um I I would argue that the lows of Game of Thrones were so low that it's impossible to compare. I don't, if this is the low of the series, Game of Thrones has nothing on this. Um, so while that's my, that's my quick kickback. Um, I apologize for the hostility. Hey, Return of the King is the low of these three movies. Wow. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, we could have a whole other episode. Oh my on god! That. I'm, I'm getting it. Um, but um, Nicholas I, Cage for myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have to stick to my guns and say that I, Kung Fu Panda, for as good as it is, left me wanting because it didn't, it didn't lean enough into the emotional aspects of it in a way that surprisingly. Like Sam's speech at the end is so fucking heartwarming and heart moving and just the just their relationship is such a phenomenal one. I gotta go with Lord of the Rings. Um, I know what that means because now again we are in the point where it's a tiebreaker. We take it to um, the fans. We take it to the fans once again. I kind of like this medium. And I forgot to mention we have a result for our last poll that was up on Twitter. Ooh, for, all our, for all of our listeners, I apologize. Add drum roll. If you don't have Twitter, um, I Facebook with how our page is set up won't let me do polls. So I just tried to say, you know, sound off in the comments if you only have Facebook and you don't have Twitter. But I will uh, give me one second. I will look up exactly what the numbers are on our poll. Um, so in a um so we had 13 votes um one like by an incredible random phd person um con air has won with 61.5 percent of the votes his girlfriend got 38.5 um nice yes so it was surprisingly closer than i was expecting even though we only had 13 people vote um so yeah that's horrifying so I I think our fans are incredible. I think we should absolutely give them the choice. Um, so yeah, let's do that. So congrats, we have another tie. Um, <laughs> and you know, at least this time I don't have as much anxiety about it. Um, but I think with that, I think we'll end because, like I said, this is ungodly long. So um, yeah. Well, uh, Sean, thank you for coming on. I I know you uh, <laughs> do tons of majestic, beautiful, and inspiring art. Where can people find your stuff? Yeah, let's plug some shit. Um, 
what is my i guess my instagram uh i'm just like i might i might turn my portfolio site off for a while because it's expensive to run and host and i have a job right now so uh you can check out my stuff at at underscore sean s-e-a-n quinn q-u-i-n-n excellent awesome yeah cool um yeah sean thank you for being on the podcast um i don't know if you know what our sign out is but uh hit us with it all right everybody uh cut the balls and swallow the gravy yeah we'll see you later we're both see ya <laughs>